From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. What a week it's been. The New York Times reports on a dinosaur mummy that's the best preserved specimen of its kind. Its skin was fossilized and the contents of its guts were intact. Former CEO and chairman of Fox News, Roger Ailes, has died. Chelsea Manning posting on Instagram, first steps of freedom, just after her release from a Kansas military prison Wednesday morning. And then there's that other stuff. As the White House reacts to bombshell reports claiming President Trump shared classified intelligence with top Russian diplomats. The New York Times reporting tonight that the fired FBI director, James Comey, created a paper trail. Attorney General Rod Rosenstein has decided to appoint a special counsel to investigate... Apparently, the president told the Russians, and, and let me just quote the president according to the Times, I just fired the head of the FBI. He was crazy, a real nut job. I faced great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off. All this adding up, as you no doubt heard, to a word so fraught, you need to ease into it. More on the I-word impeachment coming up. Is it too early to be be saying the word out loud? Some of your colleagues up on Capitol Hill uh, have used the I-word impeachment. And if you're talking about obstruction of justice, can impeachment be too far behind? I mean, I hate using that word. But on Fox and elsewhere on the right... The discussion was decidedly different. So the mainstream media frothing in the mouth, they're throwing out words like impeachment, like rabid dogs. This is a scandal with no video, with no audio, with no sex, with no money, with no dead bodies. It's a boring scandal. The news about Trump spilling classified information and trying to influence the former FBI director flew around the world, except in places where it could not penetrate. I speak not of North Korea, but rather the U.S. right-wing media. Charlie Warzel, senior technology writer for BuzzFeed News, tracked the alternate reality of the week's news in the rightosphere. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You observed four phases of the counter-narrative against the Post reporting, beginning shortly after the Post broke its story 7 p.m. Monday night. What was phase one? So phase one is actually something that's very foreign if you monitor this pro-Trump media space, which is a kind of quiet period. The second phase that I saw came about an hour or two later. It's the blaming the usual suspects phase. It's the classic Trump media talking points that really work with the base. There's a media malpractice narrative that by publishing this explosive piece of, of information that Trump leaked. They're actually bringing attention to the classified information and that that is actually a very reckless thing to do. Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram were very quick to call this just straight up fake news. Laura Ingram tweeted this out last night. White House source with direct knowledge just told me Washington Post didn't talk to any U.S. official at meeting with Lavrov. It's fake news. Welcome back to Hannity Time for tonight's fake news media roundup. And last night, the Washington Post reported... The Washington Post is worse than The Onion. It really is. And it is, uh, and it is less credible than The Onion. You have people like the Twitter pundit Bill Mitchell who say that Trump is far out ahead of everyone else in his strategic thinking and that this is actually a brilliant play and he's setting people up and that we can't see his brilliance quite yet. So just trust him. Don't worry. And there were accusations that, oh, these are just the rumblings of the deep state, the unelected apparatchiks who are just trying to destabilize the presidency. That's right. It's the idea that he is just being unfairly assaulted from all sides. And so the bias goes even beyond the media. It's in the government as well. Then there was another complaint, and maybe with some merit, that this story came from anonymous sources. A lot of the stories in the gathering Trump and Russia scandal have come from anonymous sources in law enforcement and intelligence. And anonymous sources can be abused. So I guess they could get some traction simply calling attention to the veracity of the story and the motives of its sources. Yes. So many of these pro-Trump media pundits really drill down on that and go so far as to say that, how do we know this isn't made up? And if you did have this information and you were a whistleblower or truth crusader, 
why wouldn't they attach their name to it? Why wouldn't they want that? What's interesting is the leaker was so upset that the president allegedly leaked the stuff that they went to the Washington Post and leaked the information. Anonymously sourced, likely from deep state leaks, uh, trying to smear the president. You said it's somebody, quote, close to the White House. I don't know if that's somebody who works at the sandwich or the coffee shop across the street. And most of their audience buys that narrative. And I think that that has to do a little bit with a casual reader not knowing necessarily how the sausage of journalism gets made. Here's a piece of tape from Roger Stone, the political dirty trickster who himself has been investigated in the Russia affair, on Alex Jones on Monday, saying that all this stuff is just part of the overall plot to find Donald Trump unfit for office. They are going to claim that Donald Trump has Alzheimer's. Uh, and that it is progressing, and that is the source of his insanity. I've talked to the president fairly recently. He is sharp as as attack. There is no evidence. Roger Stone there, his uh, sort of broadcasting partners in crime with Alex Jones, America's best-known conspiracy theorist, and he does this incredibly frequently. It's you, you figure out the thing that someone might say, and you get out ahead of it before it begins, and you get to say, see, I told you so. But... Even then, they could not control this story because until the next big scoop came along, it absolutely dominated mainstream coverage worldwide. So then came phase three. What was that? Phase three is probably the most important of all, which is simply just changing the news cycle and making sure that at least the pro-Trump side of the Internet is talking about something completely different. They've moved on. That means that the Washington Post story couldn't be that important because we're talking about something else. And what they moved on to was the unsolved murder of a Democratic National Committee staffer named Seth Rich, who was shot to death on the street back in July. What do we know about that murder, and what was the narrative being spun this week? Back about six months ago, this conspiracy center of the far-right internet was saying that Seth Rich had been communicating with WikiLeaks prior to his death and that Russia didn't hack the DNC. It was actually a leak from a Patriot DNC staffer. So this bubbled up again after being dormant, conveniently, a few hours after the Washington Post story. A Washington, D.C. Fox affiliate posted a report alleging a link between Seth Rich and WikiLeaks that was found on his laptop. Breathtaking, breaking development, Griff. Breaking indeed and developing at a rapid pace, bombshell new evidence. Even though it was a semi-confirmed, very loose, tenuous report, it immediately just caught fire on the conservative side of the Internet. And we should observe that while the Washington police are stymied as to why Rich was murdered, because it didn't appear to have been a robbery, they have located absolutely zero evidence that he was involved with WikiLeaks and that any such murder conspiracy by Russians or by Democrats is plausible. Am I correct? Yes. This report fell apart almost immediately under scrutiny. CNN has done a lot of good reporting debunking this. The investigator at the center of the Fox affiliates report has since walked this back. Fox has issued an editor's note correction. So this story has sort of been proven to be false in this iteration. And yet the narrative had already played out across the Internet. And then there's the coup de grace, phase four, no, I'm not fake news, you're fake news tactic. Having just used the Seth Rich non-story to drown out the Oval Office breach of secrecy story, the right claims that the opposite happened. That's right. This is what I call closing the loop. The idea here is that This Seth Rich story was starting to bubble up. Fox was about to report this, and the Washington Post broke this other story in order to take away from this really important, very serious national story. Now they clearly brought out the new Comey memo they had waiting to obscure this. The news story on Seth Rich. Talk about an interesting report, again, that the Washington Post just has no interest in covering. And it's really just tightly tied in a bow so that it looks like they're the truth warriors all along. 
All right, now I have to ask you one more thing. Since the Oval Office story broke and all of the reaction to it, there's been a cavalcade of other astonishing developments in the White House. The first was that we discovered that fired FBI Director Comey had taken notes of a conversation with the president in which he is alleged to have asked Comey to get off of the Russia case. We have learned that Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor who was fired by the president for misleading him about his contacts with the Russians, he and others in the campaign had at least 18 other previously undisclosed contacts with Russian officials. And we have learned that a special counsel has been appointed by the Justice Department to carry on the FBI investigation of the Russia affair. How have the pro-Trump media reacted to those developments? There is a lot of phase one going on right now. There is a lot of silence. You have some of the standard blame the deep state defenses. What it is right now that it hasn't been before is kind of disjointed. For the most part, I think this has been an extremely chaotic week. They're on the backs of their feet as much as the White House is right now. Charlie, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Charlie Warzel is a senior technology writer for BuzzFeed News. Roger Ailes was many things. Impresario, political consultant, TV visionary, sexual predator. Most of all, you could actually say he was a pioneer in green energy. In exactly the same way that natural forces of wind, sun, water, and geothermal can be harnessed to generate power, Ailes harnessed white grievance and converted it into vast piles of green. As the so-called great right-wing conspiracy was coalescing, he saw cash in the seething resentment over civil rights, school prayer, abortion, feminism, immigration, environmentalism, big government, and ultimately globalism. Ailes knew that the aggrieved represented a huge audience desperate over assaults on their values and even more desperate to be validated. Fox News Channel was founded on one great lie, fair and balanced, and one great truth that mainstream news media were voices of liberalism. Not of ideology or doctrine or partisanship, but of a journalistic mentality that largely overlaps with progressive thinking. Reform, truth to power, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Liberal democracy is the consensus of the developed world, but every incremental American step toward it was grist for Fox's mill. And along that path, its founding truth yielded two decades of fierce propaganda and what they now call alternate facts. Fox News Channel, the house organ of the political right, worked in lockstep with the administration of George W. Bush and now the dumpster fire that is the Trump White House. The obit writers will call Trump's election and the billion-dollar Fox franchise Roger Ailes' legacy. I'd call it a bill of indictment. Coming up... What are the responsible conservative media to do? This is on the media. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com slash WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. 
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. On Wednesday evening, a new character in Washington's endless dramedy entered center stage. The Justice Department tonight naming the former FBI director, Robert Mueller, special counsel to take over the investigation into Russia's meddling in the 2016 election and possible collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. The reaction from Breitbart? Why no investigation of Obama? From the Daily Caller? Mueller made the FBI soft on radical Islam. From Rush Limbaugh, that whole Russia scandal was invented by Hillary Clinton. But the reaction from the conservative standard-bearer, National Review, is Trump brought the special counsel investigation on himself. Indeed, as the popular far-right-wing media deflect reality's grubby developments, the media of the intellectual right, such as the National Review, the Weekly Standard, and Commentary, grapple with the question of how, if at all, Trump's presidency can move the conservative agenda forward and what their role can be. In a blog post last week, Commentary Associate Editor Noah Rothman lamented that the window in which real legislative achievements could be secured is closing rapidly. Noah, welcome to On the Media. Thank you very much for having me. So in the midst of this past week, rather than focus on Comey or Trump's shared intelligence with Russia, much of the right-wing press seized on murdered Democratic National Committee staffer Seth Rich. Big news? No, <laughs> it is not big news, unfortunately, and that is an outgrowth of an impulse on, I wouldn't call them the extreme right, but I would call them the pro-Trump right, to shift attention away from the presidency, which is just a defeating prospect. You cannot shift attention away from the presidency. It is all-consuming. <laughs> the thing about people who are like me and my colleagues who were Trump skeptical during the primaries and Trump skeptics still is that you know, we've kind of come to terms with the fact that this is the presidency, and to the extent that he can be a vehicle to achieve conservative legislative achievements, he's valuable. Mm-hmm. To the extent that he becomes an obstacle to that, he is less valuable. So your evolution in the past 18 months, as you moved from Trump skeptic to Trump resigned, or perhaps <laughs> Trump the opportunity? I mean, where have you traveled? Well, I, I consider myself still a Trump skeptic, I believe, in more <laughs> ways than not. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that I wouldn't approve of the things he's done, which are conservative or valuable, I think, to American national interests. For example, the appointment of certain members to cabinet-level positions. I'm not skeptical of Betsy DeVos. I'm not skeptical of Mr. Pruitt, the EPA director. And the attack, for example, on the Assad regime targets, well, that was short-lived, and I would prefer a longer campaign, was long overdue. Uh, You wrote that the door to consolidate conservatism is closing, that immigration reform, an infrastructure bill, an IRS reform bill, the border wall, passing a budget. This ambitious legislative agenda is already behind schedule. You tweeted on Thursday, conservatism is in crisis. Few now speak its assumptions, fearing their unpopularity in practice. Donald Trump ran for the presidency against conservatism in a large way. He ran on a platform contending that it was heedless, that it was cruel, in fact, that people would be, quote, dying in the streets if we were to enact health care reform along the lines of what conservatives have promised that they do for quite some time. So we knew we had somebody who was skeptical towards conservatism, but who nevertheless didn't have an ideology. So there was something of an opportunity there. There's nothing that achieves something faster than not heeding ideology. Ideology stays your hands. Pragmatism demands means that justify ends. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. really what those ends are. The Republican Party believed that he could achieve things because he was a pragmatist, but in terms of ideology, he was tabula rasa, and they could write that in? Well, he could be gently guided in a direction that was a more conservative direction. Because Donald Trump was elected as sort of an anti-ideologue, 
with the whole apparatus of the Republican institution intact, all these Republicans who had been elected in 2010, 2014 ran on very conservative platforms. So they understood that perhaps they could put a lot of legislation in front of him that was conservative as he was put his signature to it because he needed wins. Wins were the objective and the Republican Congress would provide him with wins. It turns out that he's rather addicted to drama and has a tendency to step on his own message. And he has tied the hands of Congress because he has thrown curveballs at them left and right. So make your case for the door being virtually closed. Well, if they're pursuing a budget reconciliation process, which is a maneuver whereby they don't need 60 votes to pass something, they got to do that before mid-June. The window closes. Then it reopens again in the autumn, where things are going to be a lot more politically difficult because we're closer to an election year. They need tax code reform and to move on to all those other reforms that I talked about. And all that was supposed to happen by April. It just seems like we're too far behind schedule now to really catch up, especially if we have a new FBI director who is going to have to get confirmed. When Jim Comey was fired, they were in the middle of a health care markup, and that had to be stopped dead in the water because they had to respond to media inquiries. And yet all we hear from this White House are things that reopen that investigation and make more news that absorb senators' time. So the Republican moment is already lost? Yes. The Republican moment to achieve radical sweeping legislation to the tune of what Democrats achieved in the 111th Congress in 2009 and 2010. Financial reform, health care reform, the stimulus project, all those things that were passed by the 111th Congress, that's done. We're not going to see anything like that. Now, we've heard the word impeachment bandied about. Some people are even invoking the 25th Amendment. But you believe that essentially support for the GOP will crater if their party's leader is subject to that kind of censure. And you wrote that for Republicans, the path of least resistance is to march sheepishly toward November 2018, standing behind their party's titular head, come what may. Right? Right. So what happens to conservatism then? There was a very well-received New York Times opinion piece by a former radio host by the name of Charlie Sykes that addressed this issue. He said that conservatism has become sort of amorphous. There's very little policy on the table. There's very even little philosophy on the table. What we're talking about now is a man, a very mercurial man. And whatever he does and whatever he happens to do, we feel the need to defend, if only because the people who are attacking him are people we don't like. Sounds like you guys have a big problem. Kind of corrupting. It is a problem. I wrote a piece for the June issue of Commentary, the print magazine, which tries to address what Charlie Sykes wrote in his column, that we're not talking about any issues, we're just talking about a man, by talking about some issues. Healthcare, national defense, the morality of a preemptive defense, the efficacy of incrementalism, big comprehensive legislation is almost never comprehensive, and it's usually rife with unintended consequences. The variety of things that conservatives used to believe but have sort of forgotten. Pushing against the tide to write about issues rather than Trump. And you hoped that perhaps that would cross over to audiences beyond your customary ones. Pro-Trump conservative audiences. The idea is to reacclimate people to a conservative worldview that they've otherwise forgotten in the rush to defend Trump against a media onslaught that, by the way, is excessive. I do try to tailor a message to make sure that people hear it who need to hear it. For example, and and, uh, this frustrated some of my uh, friends on the left when they read a recent column by Eric Erickson and the Resurgent, who had requested, against all odds, that Donald Trump consider resignation in order to get the ship on track. And he opened with a broadside against the liberal movement. The left said, oh, Why can't we hear a column from the right that is just without reservation or qualification attacking Republicans? Why do they have to go after Democrats? It's so counterproductive. It's not. You're talking to a particular audience. So that shows that you're one of the brethren. You're one of them. Right. You look at conservatism now. You've got a, a fractious group of potential voters out there. You have a message that is being obscured by the spectacle of this presidency flashing lights all over the place. So, you know, what do you do to clarify your ideas, to build some unity among the constituency you'll have to rely on to turn your priorities into policy? No one is happy right now who's honest on the right. There's a lot of people who are not being honest 
about how thrilled they are with this administration. But people who are, say, on my side are very frustrated. The alt-right is miserable. They are beside themselves. Why? Because Donald Trump has not done anything he promised he would do. (laughs) He has given up on border funding for the wall. There is no deportation force. The fact that he exercised his uh, authority to execute strikes on Syria suggested to them the return of neoconservative foreign policy. The Atlantic asked for a quote from uh, Ann Coulter during those strikes, and she responded that she just couldn't because she was just too depressed. (laughs) For now... The narrative framing in order to reach voters for whom no message gets through is as I'm trying to do it, which is to say this is what you want, which is really conservative policy, and you need to express that to this presidency. The style and the false bravado that is Donald Trump is very attractive to the conservative movement that believes they're representatives haven't fought for their priorities, whatever those happen to be. And that's, but it's style, not the content. I don't think there's very much content there. Um, when you get down to actual policy prescriptions, again, look at the alt-right. The alt-right really was paying attention to policy. They weren't just paying attention to affect. They wanted their views represented in Washington, and they didn't get it. They're really frustrated by that. Anybody who's being honest on the right would express frustration with this presidency. Noah, thank you very much. Thank you. Noah Rothman is the associate editor of Commentary, a conservative monthly. Ever since last November's election, the media have been on a soul-searching tour of America's Trump-supporting heartland. Their stated goal is to better understand Trump voters, but the actual coverage tends to skew towards a different question. Do you regret it yet? Exhibit A, the coverage of recent special elections in Georgia and Kansas, which the media dubbed... In a race widely considered to be a referendum on President Trump. Pouring money and attention into Kansas made it a referendum on Donald Trump. In both elections, the Republicans prevailed. And now the media are at it again, with the special election being held in Montana to fill the state's lone congressional seat vacated by Republican Ryan Zinke when Trump named him Secretary of the Interior. This is a very red state, but the fact that we're even having these conversations in places like Montana and Georgia, with the number of people and the amount of support and the percentages Mm -hmm. we're seeing for Democrats, is definitely a referendum on our president. But according to BuzzFeed's Anne Helen Peterson, this Trump-centric approach may be hindering, not helping, our understanding of the electorate. I think that people look at the results of someplace like Montana and see that Trump won by 20 points, and they say, that's a done deal, when a lot of the people who voted for Trump also voted for their Democratic governor. Peterson spent a week driving through Montana and talking to voters. She found not a referendum on Trump, but something much more interesting. On one side, you have this guy, Rob Quist, who is an actual singing cowboy. Life seems cold and bare Every way I will defend you. Very classic Montanan who is also coming out as pretty progressive. Bernie Sanders has endorsed him, sort of thing. On the other side, you have a guy named Greg Gianforte who just lost the governor's race to a Democrat, Steve Bullock. And he is a billionaire from Bozeman. Bozeman is kind of known as Bose Angeles. It's like a place where a lot of money has come into, both in terms of tech and people having second homes. And he is being framed as someone who's not from Montana, even though he's lived there for 20 years. Carpetbagger. Yeah. If you were to divine only from what the political commercials say, what would you think this race was about? I would think this race is about guns. And Quiz doesn't support our gun rights. He said, I fully support Second Amendment rights. But he got caught pushing gun control. Long before Greg Gianforti showed up here from New Jersey, this old rifle and I were here in Montana, just like my father before me. Increasingly, it's about health care. Did you know in Congress there are nearly 300 millionaires? No wonder their so-called health reform was just another tax break for the rich. And in Montana, there's just so much at stake because Medicaid expansion has really helped a lot of people receive rural health care, which is a big deal there. The issue of land rights and grazing rights. Absolutely. Greg Gianforte blocked access to the East Gallatin. Fences, intimidating signs, it's against the law. 
And it's against our values. And I would think it's about who is and who isn't a real Montanan. Rob Quist may be entertaining, but on the issues, he's out of tune with Montana. I won't stand by while a millionaire from New Jersey tries to attack my Montana values. Now, not conforming with local values is a threadbare notion that political parties like to trot out whenever Mm -hmm. possible. But among those who have made what you think are blunt and uh, ill-conceived assumptions is the Republican National Committee, which you believe also doesn't quite get Montana. How so? There's this piece of opposition research about Quist that emerged in a couple of different right-leaning publications. And what it was is that Quist had played at what they call the nudist resort. And there's a different attitude towards nakedness in Montana and northern Idaho, even Oregon, because there are natural hot springs all over the state. People hike in and, you know, just don't wear a bathing suit. And so the national press picked up on this piece of research and we're like, oh my gosh, let's make a huge deal about the fact that Quist did this and this isn't Montana values. Today, the RNC blasted out an email titled, Not Safe for Work, writing, Rob Quist is a featured attraction at a nudist resort. Yes, that's Quist with his daughter on the homepage. When really, a Montanan would take more offense at someone telling them what Montana values are than someone playing at a nude resort. No outsider's going to tell us what to do or what not to do. Yeah, and I think that's part of why the sort of more conservative values that oftentimes make their way into other races just don't play here. There's not a lot of discussion of abortion. There's not a ton of discussion of either candidate's religion, even though Gianforte is a pretty fundamentalist Christian. And so Montanans are clinging to, especially the ones who are a little bit older, they're clinging to this idea, you can't predict what we vote. We don't vote straight down ticket line. And they're not just undecided voters. They're people who are looking for a reason to vote across ticket in order to maintain checks and balances. Can you tell me how Montanans are experiencing this race? Yeah, I think Montanans are not used to being in the national spotlight in quite this way and have a mixture of (laughs) amusement and rejection to this status. They are resistant to the idea that Somehow what happens in their state should speak to larger national trends. But also, you know, there's just a wariness towards reporters in general from national organizations. A lot of times there's just a way that Montana is covered that turns it into either like a backwards place or a place where tourists go. So you head for Montana, first stop Billings. Mm -hmm. And you say, oh, yeah, I'm from BuzzFeed, an internet news site in New York City. So... The way that I get away with reporting there is I say right away that I'm from northern Idaho, and then I, like, say some bad things about New York. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think that's usually very helpful to to let them know, you know, I'm from a place that people get wrong, too. So I have some stake in getting this place right. Tell me about some of your more interesting encounters. So Anaconda used to be a booming copper town. And now it's kind of hollowed out, but slowly recovering. Coming on the street, and there's a guy wearing an American flag shirt and a biker vest and, you know, big old beard. And I'm like, huh, wonder who he likes. <laughs> I walk up to him and I ask him, you know, what are your thoughts? And he says, I'm from Anaconda, which means I hate anyone from Bozeman and I especially hate anyone from Bozeman who's a billionaire and telling me what to do. He's a, an old school union guy who used to fit pipe for the copper mine. And then after I talk to him for a long time, I turn around and there's a taxidermy shop. I go into this taxidermy shop and it's, you know, it is out of this world, every kind of animal. And then this guy tells me about, okay, he voted for Trump. He voted for the Democratic governor, Bullock. But he just can't trust Quist because he's a business owner and there's this talk that Quist didn't pay a subcontractor. He stiffed a contractor who did work at his home. How is that for Montana Values? And so I just had this really interesting, you know, one-two punch of different types of voters who are in some ways so Montana, but also belie, you know, our stereotypes of what voters look like. Which gets to the larger question here. How do you approach these every now and then stories without resorting to cliches and fundamentally misreading the local politics? One thing that I think most news organizations discount 
is looking at, okay, who do we have who's from the Mountain West? It doesn't necessarily need to be from Montana, and it doesn't have to necessarily be a political reporter. I'm a culture reporter, but politics has infused every single one of our desks. I'm currently rallying to be in the Mountain West for the time leading up to midterms because I think there's so many really fascinating stories to be told from that position. Even if I don't move there, like, those will be the sorts of stories that I'm committed to telling. Well, you want some advice from an outsider? Yeah, what's that? If you can get that gig, make sure that they pay you car expenses by the mile. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. And thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Helen Peterson is a senior culture writer for BuzzFeed, and she just spent home as a time covering politics. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. These days, it's tempting to focus solely on the mayhem on our own shores. But we'll resist that briefly and turn to a story that seems as remote as it is confounding, Syria. This week, as yet another round of peace talks in Geneva commenced, the Assad regime denied charges from our White House that the bodies of thousands of Syrian political prisoners had been burned to destroy evidence of war crimes. Meanwhile, the six-year war rages on, with casualties mounting on all sides. Throughout, Western media have struggled to convey the enormity of it and sustain our attention because the war is relentless and complex and, even more important, too dangerous to reach and see firsthand. Syrian journalist Zaina Erheim is working to change that. As Syria Project Coordinator for the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, she's trained hundreds of citizen journalists to send us reports of their lives under war. Erheim grew up in Idlib, a small conservative city in the Northwest. She studied journalism in Damascus and London and worked at the BBC before she returned home. She's won several prizes, including an award for courageous and ethical journalism from Reporters Without Borders. But when she started out, her mother supported her, but her community belittled her. You're going to be on TV? How could you be on TV? Your voice is going to be heard all over the place. That was pretty much a taboo. I was the first woman journalist who was coming from my hometown. And I remember my aunt saying that you're going to be spinster for doing that because no one is going to agree to marry you. (laughs) Well, someone did eventually. (laughs) But I remember when I started writing about my own town, how the perspective of my community changed. It was changed from that spoiled girl who's doing journalism against our will to the journalist that we can report to and we can tell the story of our town. My aunt, who said, I'm going to be spinster, when I got the first award, I went to her and I said, so? And she said, I'm really glad you didn't listen to me then. (laughs) And the community? When the uprising started, and I was one of the few professional journalists who started saying what's happening. 
and I started reading things about me on social media that I was really shocked because those are the same people who criticized me for doing journalism as a woman. And now they're praising me for saying the truth and for being there for them. I've read elsewhere, it was never your intention to be a war reporter. Yeah, but sadly the word came to my home, so I couldn't really run away from it. I was working with the BBC and I left it to go to Syria with IWPR. With the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. Yeah, at that time in 2013, I was actually rooming the whole northern side of Syria. I went to Latakia suburb, to Raqqa. I spent more than two months in Raqqa and it was one of the most amazing experiences I had. Why? Now, sadly, Raqqa is the capital of ISIS, but Raqqa was one of the first cities to be liberated. And it has the most active civil society organizations. It has the first Syrian feminist organization there. In late 2013, there were more than 45 NGOs active in Raqqa city. And half of each of them was women. So I enjoyed staying in Raqqa more than any other area because the military were not that dominant there because the women were taking the lead. Can you tell me about one of them? Suad, she was a teacher and she was protesting every single day with a poster that she writes in front of the ISIL main headquarter. Once she wrote ISIL presence equals regime presence and she was harassed She was beaten once one of the jihadist fighters shot in the air to frighten her away, and she was still demonstrating every single day. And then I think two years ago, she won uh, the PIN Award for a Courageous Woman, and they contacted me because I was the only one who wrote a story about her. So when you went back to Syria, was there a media environment? How were people getting their information? Since the uprising started, the armed forces were second priority for the regime. The first was those who are documenting what's going on. Most of those who decided to document what's going on and become media activists were either students, carpenters, were doing other jobs. Many of them were either arrested or killed, and the others ran away. So this is the Syria you returned to, to do reporting? This is my Syria. How did you begin My plan was mainly to use my background as a journalist to pass the knowledge that I have to those who don't have it, who are already media activists, to give them the extra skills that might help them being taken seriously by the international media. I did um, more focus on the women, and many of them didn't even have their university degrees. Some of them didn't even have the ninth grade degree, but they really were eager to be heard and to tell the stories. When we ended the training, they were professional enough to be published in our website, Serious Stories. And then we paid the women the fees for their stories. And the Syrian pound compared to dollar, it's it's pretty cheap. So they actually gained five times more than what their husbands gained for a whole month in one story. <laughs> so their husbands, who opposed them going to this journalism training, they started to encourage them to keep <laughs> writing because they became the breadwinners of the house. What kinds of stories did they report for their final assignment? The stories no man would have reported, maybe because they didn't even think that this deserved to be reported. I remember Nisreen did a story about the raise of domestic violence during the war, and she was looking into the causes, like most of the men were fired from their governmental jobs and they found themselves jobless in-house within the whole pressure applied by the war and by the arming forces and everything going on. I want you to talk about why these particular stories by women are important in the context of war. For most men, for most male media activists, the news is how many barrel bombs have hit who military fraction have captured this area, how many people are killed, how many are injured. The women are writing about life, not war, the story of Syria, not the story of the Syrian conflict. That's why two years ago, I created the women blog on our website where regular women without journalism background are writing their diaries, how they're dealing with their household, how they're dealing with their children, the schools, the education, the financial issues that they're facing. This is the Syrian history that's been written through the women's eyes. Can you recall a story that really struck you by one of the people that you've trained? I remember Hazar wrote a story about the Sharia Accords. He was pretty much conservative, and he was much more older than me. I remember when the training, when he entered and he saw me and I was not wearing a veil, and he was like, I'm going to be taking that from a woman, and she's not wearing a veil. 
He refused to look at me in the whole first day. He was always looking on the ground. I was a bit bothered, but I wanted him the most because he overcome his fear, his masculine uh, space to be actually attending a training given by a woman. The second day, he started asking questions. He stayed after the training was finished, and he started providing me with the stories. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Was he looking at you at that point? He started looking at me in the eyes. By the end of the training, he produced a great story about the Sharia courts. And then after a year, he told me, Zena, I want to pass the training that you give to others. Can you help me? So I started to establish a curriculum for him, and he trained other 30 people. And those who are trained by Hazza are now writing for us and for different outlets. So it actually flourished and spread around. Do the correspondents you've trained do war reporting? They live there. It's not like you are going to do a mission to report what's going on. It's happening next door to your neighbor. So they're always there when something happened. But when this uh, huge massacres or attacks are not happening, they focus on the people. They focus on the human side of the story. You know, we hear quite a lot about Western journalists who lose their lives or they're kidnapped in Syria. We don't hear anything about local journalists. And the sad thing is that all the stories are assuming that Syrians who are living under the control of ISIL are pro them, and no one is actually showing how those people are suffering. And those people are the ones who are being terrorized by ISIS. Osama was one of the brilliant guys I've met. He was running a, a local publication called Thawri Ana, I Am a Revolutionary. He was secular. He was studying engineering when the revolution started, and then he found himself doing journalism. He was writing brilliant stories, and we gave him a grant to support his publication. He was in Turkey, and I told him, ISIS now are more powerful in Raqqa, and you shouldn't be going. And he said, this is my hometown. I wouldn't leave it for them. He went back, and they raided his house, and they kidnapped him and his brother. And we don't know whether they are still alive or dead. He has been kidnapped for the last four years. I Google him every month, hoping that someone is going to be writing something about him. And never a story in the Western press. No. What do you think is the biggest omission in the coverage that you're seeing here? I think what's missing is the Syrians. Anything that's related to ISIS is too sexy and is going to be on the news definitely. If ISIS committed a crime and the regime committed the same exact crime, the first one is going to be reported all over the world. The second wouldn't even have a corner in the newspaper. When did you leave Syria? I left it December 2015. Why? I left it when I was pregnant. I was too scared that something might happen to the baby. I wouldn't forgive myself. And then I decided to go back, but I got serious threats I couldn't really risk going back because I know they're going to assassinate me then. Are you still doing work in Syria? Yeah, but we had to adapt to the new situation. We recently did training of trainers on specifically conflict-sensitive journalism, and we now have five trainers who are doing these trainings inside Syria. We have Women's Center, where we train them about how to use Internet, English, Turkish, French courses, so most of our programs are being implemented inside, but it's pretty difficult and challenging, I have to admit. In an environment where there are so many competing narratives, you know, from the regime, from the rebels, ISIS, how do you suggest journalists abroad tell a more accurate story? I believe they have a great tool, that's social media. And some sources have built their credibility through the last five, six years. So they could be sources to be taken seriously by the international journalist. And I think the language barrier is very important to be overcome. So you do need to have a translator or an Arabic speaker to be able to reach to those sources. And secondly, we have two million Syrians who are living in Turkey, one million who's living in Lebanon, and the same in Jordan. Those are Syrians, and they have their own stories and challenges and pretty difficult conditions in neighboring countries. Reporting those is reporting about Syrians. Things are shifting in Syria now. They're shifting all the time. The regime has gained ground. The rebels are in retreat. Do you see an end to this? Will you go back? It's impossible for me to go to any area that's controlled by the regime. 
I know for sure, I am wanted for three different security branches, including the Air Force, although I can hardly ride a bike. I know my fate. I know I will be put in jail and tortured to death. This is confirmed. When that reason for not going is removed, I would definitely go back. I know many who would also do the same, not only in Arabic countries, but also in Europe and even in the U.S. Our role is going to be starting as soon as any kind of peace treaty is being signed. Then we can start rebuild not only the buildings, but also rebuild ourselves. But as long as the regime is still in power, we're going to still have ISIS. We're going to still have extremists who are claiming to be fighting the regime, but they're actually just fighting Syrians. And we can't do anything from abroad. But keep reporting what's going on for the international community to finally act. To finally act. What's the view of the international community? Uh, We've lost our faith in anything. We've lost our faith in the UN, in the international system, in human rights. When I was in Damascus, I volunteered with the UN for more than a year. And I now I wonder why did I waste my time? I I thought then that the UN is actually pro-human rights and they're representing the human rights in the world. Now I think they're just an agency that work for the sake of working. They don't work unless they get a permission from the regime. And on the political level, they've done nothing. And the same goes for any other of the significant international actors. Oh, well, yeah, especially the United States, especially after the previous administration, where we're expecting more, especially after the red line that was crossed many times and Obama didn't act which gave the regime a green light to go further and do whatever they want. And it invited Russia to come in and make the things much more complicated. And the view now? Unfortunately, all the Syrians that I spoke to are happy because uh, President Trump decided to bomb the airbase. From which planes took off the very next day to continue the war against the rebels. Yeah, but still they felt that this might make Assad think twice before using the chemical weapon again. Assad might or might not, but at least someone stood up against him. And U.S. has been bombing Syria for the last year. They've done more than 4,000 strikes. And this is the only strike where no civilian was killed. Thank you. Thank you. Syrian journalist Zaina Erheim is Syria Project Coordinator for the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, and Michael Lowinger. We had more help from Sara Kari, Leah Feder, and Kate Bakhtiarova. Kate, our intern, is leaving after this week, going back to school. She has been a wonderful addition to the show. And Kate, we wish you the best of luck. And our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Terrence Bernardo. We also have to say goodbye to Sara Kari, who's been invaluable these past few months, but she's moving to a show down the hall. See you, Sarah. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the Overbrook Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.